Exploring the natural world, one podcast episode at a time. This is For What It's Earth. Hi all, and thank you for joining me for another episode of For What It's Earth by me, Marissa Jacobs of the Art of Ecology. Here, nature enthusiasts, animal lovers, and eco-warriors can discover and explore so many facets of the environment that we all love, as well as some creative ways to make a positive difference or to learn about our planet. And during season four, you may have heard already, but I'm combining the two things that I love most in this world, and that is the natural world and art, hence my business name. And you are going to be hearing from all sorts of artists across many mediums from all over the United States who are trying to make the ecosystems around them a better place through their craft or through what they are learning about and producing. And so today I am joined by Kat Dale. She is a postdoctoral researcher at East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina and completed her PhD at the University of California in Santa Cruz, bouncing around here. And she was looking at the movement and dispersal of fish and focused on marine eels. So while at ECU, she was looking at how to um, monitor these fish and their changes in spawning time and location and how they kind of are navigating climate change. So during this episode, we are discussing a kind of weird and unknown branch of art, which is the art of data visualization and how scientists are communicating more dry or complex concepts through things like images, diagrams, and other visual aids. So, Kat, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Of course, thank you. Um, so, can you go into a little more detail than I gave in the in the little introduction and bio about what you do with yields and some of your work that you've done? Sure, yeah. So, my work really focuses on the dispersal and movement of animals. So, I've done some work on birds before. I'm really interested in dispersal and movement of people. I do a lot of active mobility work in my community, but I'm really interested in the early life history of fish. So that's when they're little babies. Uh, Most fish have a larval stage that looks pretty different than their parents. And they go through an actual metamorphosis for most, for most fish. So there are a few millimeters that floating around in the, in the water column. And then after maybe a weeks to a few months that that larvae larva transforms into a, its adult stage. So I'm really interested in what's happening during that stage because it's a period of really high mortality for fish. And those larvae are really important. They represent the pool of potential new recruits to the adult population. So I'm really interested in the early life history of fish in general. And I focused on, for my PhD, I focused on marine eels in the Eastern Pacific. So looking at eels from about Central America up through California. And I focused a lot on the California moray. So if you've ever been snorkeling out there on a reef in the, maybe in the tropics somewhere, and you've seen a little moray eel head poking out of the Uh reefs, those are what I worked on. Uh, California moray is the only marine coastal eel off California. So it's a pretty special one. And my PhD work was really diverse. So I didn't specialize. Like a lot of people in their PhDs will really focus in on one specific topic or study system, but my research was really, really all over the place. Mostly (laughs) all focused on dispersal movement, so keep that in mind. But I did look at how body shape of larvae influences their geographic range. I looked at body coloration of California mores in relation to their habitat. I looked at the effect of marine protected areas on moray eel abundance and number and jaw and head morphology or shape. Um, I revised geographic ranges of all known Eastern marine Pacific eels. So that was a fun side project. And I've done some genetic work. So sort of all over the place. Yeah. Wow. So with the the protected marine protected areas and you're saying jaw morphology, did you find that there was a correlation between protected area diversity and non-protected areas specifically with the jaw? Yeah, I love you asked that because that was one of the really cool things about that project. It was one of the first projects to show that there's a link between protection and what an animal's shape is. So their head or jaw morphology. 
And that's something that's a little plastic, right? You might think like, well, a, a jaw or a skull shape doesn't seem like it would be able to change that much. But mores, once they settle on their reef as juveniles or right after they transform from larvae, they basically don't move for the rest of their lives. So they have really high site fidelity once they're adults. So okay. what's happening during that juvenile development period can last throughout the rest of their lives. And we found that because of differences in their prey community, so what they were eating, that oh seems to have influenced their jaw and head morphology. So outside of the MPA, the marine protected area, right. there were a lot more octopuses and other fish that they were eating. So they had more diverse diets. And they had he heads and jaw musculature that allowed them to eat more unruly prey. So having stronger bite forces, which seems to correlate with the octopuses. Inside the marine protected area, there were a lot more lobsters and kelp bass, which are both commercially fish species or recreationally fish species. So inside the marine protected area, those species are really benefiting from protection. So, and those are also moray eels preferred prey items. So they love kelp bass and lobsters, but they also are much bigger. So the eating a really big item requires right. really large jaw opening sizes. And we found that their jaw and head morphology was allowing for that inside the breed protected area. So inside the MPA, they're eating really big things like kelp bass and lobsters. And right. outside the marine protected area, they're eating unruly things like octopuses. That is absolutely amazing to me. That's like mind blowing. So I don't know if you know this cat, but my original background was in veterinary medicine and surgery. So a lot of the comparative anatomy and so the just anatomy and morphology of wildlife is just like super, yeah. super cool. And then now in more of the ecology side of things, like that's mind blowing and that's super cool. So, um, I studied mammalogy, so eels are not that. Um, <laughs> so do eels, they don't have a sagittal arch on their skull, do they? I don't think so. The thing that no. the jaw muscles like attach to? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, that's a really good question. I'm actually not sure if they're, if they have an arch or not. They, okay. yeah, I'd have to look into that. I don't think so though, having seen eel skulls, but yeah, other attachment points for okay. muscles, definitely. I, if 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 I want to back up just a second, so yeah, a lot of people are sort of not sure what an eel is, even. So maybe oh. I should have started with that. Just but yeah, yeah, like I get a lot of questions about are eels fish, and yes, they are indeed fish. They are very old fish. They're an old lineage of fish. They've been diverging from other bony fishes for about 350 million years, and. The thing that makes an eel an eel is not that they're long and skinny. So that's a very common misconception. Okay. The fact, the the characteristics that make them eels, so coming from a morphology or comparative mm -hmm. anatomy standpoint, they have very small or no scales. They have no pelvic fin, which is the fin that's okay. sort of on a fish's belly near right. their chin. And they have a fused caudal anal dorsal fin. So this fin that goes all the way around their tails. Yeah. Okay. And they have no bony gill cover over their gills. So most fish have this bony gill cover. Is that the so operculum? That's the operculum. Exactly. Yes, the I operculum. remember something. Good job. Hey. <laughs> so they, those are the characteristics that make eels eels. So a lot of things that people think of as eels. So I get a lot of, oh, I love um, uh, electric eels mm -hmm. or I love lamprey or hagfish. All of those are not true eels. They're just elongate fishes that move with a sort of eel-like swimming pattern and right look kind of eel-like that they are not in fact true eels oh, so wow. it's a little bit about about eels and one really interesting characteristic about at least mores the uh, more eels mm -hmm. and other eels as well is that they have a special set of jaws in the back of their throat so eels right. have been you know they've been di diverging from other fish for a long time they have really fused skulls and this is what your comment about the sagittal gotcha. arch reminding me of this their skulls look very different from other fish in that they don't have a lot of moving parts. So more like our skulls, right? The only moving right. part in our skulls are our jaws. Yeah. Yep. And other fish kind of have really movable skulls, which is sort of cool to think about that they can expand their entire skull and use that to suck in prey items from the water down into their esophagus. But eels, they have wow. this fused skull more like us. So they have instead evolved the second set of jaws in their throat that actually extend forward into their mouth cavity, grab prey and transport it back to their esophagus. And the, the little extra jaws look just like mini versions of their, of their main jaws. So 
They're called pharyngeal jaws. And actually all Uh fish have pharyngeal jaws. They're usually just, they look more like grinding plates and they don't, they don't move much or anything like that. So eels have a very unique skull adaptation to allow them to eat big stuff. That is so cool. That is so cool. cool. So So I don't know about their sagittal arch, but I can tell you about their pharyngeal jaws. (laughs) That's so cool. Um, So for those who are subscribers on my Patreon, I'll have the video version of this and I will pull in a picture of an eel skull just so that we can all see it. Um, So that's amazing. A lot of people compare the adaptation to the alien in the movie Alien. Um, Oh, with the big... With the jaw that extends forward. So I haven't actually seen Alien, but this is a very common comparison that people tend to make with with that movie. So you can picture that. That is super cool. I love it. Um, I love love weird animals. They're just so fascinating. And so then kind of going off of that is when we typically, and when I say we, I mean like general public, you and I probably think of something different, but... The general public usually thinks of doing research on animals as your charismatic megafauna um, or the cute stuff. So like the fluffy stuff, or if you're doing the marine, well, then that's save the whales. And we have the big, cool whales or the adorable seal pups, penguins, dolphins, you know, stuff like that. Um, But there's a lot of biodiversity in our oceans, in our seas, in everywhere. And... There's so much more, like you're describing these marine protected areas that have varying degrees of biodiversity found there. And I always find that the more I learn about an animal, even if originally I'm like, that's a weird animal. I don't know about this thing. The more I learn about it, the more intrigued I get. And I'm like, wow, this is actually really amazing species and it becomes charismatic to me. So what inspired you to kind of diverge off the path of the whales and the more popular I'll say for lack of a word no totally yeah and a lot of those animals there I mean they're they're sentinels for the ocean so they definitely are very important in their own in their own right right so what got me interested in eels in particular so I worked I did my undergraduate at the University of Miami in Florida and I had the opportunity to work with our National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA. Okay. So it's a federal agency. They also, they're in charge of the National Weather Service and satellites and also supporting sustainable fisheries in the U.S. So I worked with them for a few years on fish larvae and I went on several research cruises and the eel larvae were always the coolest. They, everyone was just always so excited when we found them in our samples. Eels have really unique lar- larvae. So Okay. I mentioned before that most fish larvae are very small and they're out there for weeks to months, but eels have a special larval form. They even have their own name. It's called a leptocephalus larvae. It means slim head. They look like clear leaves. So pull this into your, for your Patreon subscribers too. They look like clear leaves with a little bitty tiny head and (laughs) they don't look like eels at all. They're sort of flattened, clear. They look weird. We didn't know what they were for a really long time. People didn't know they were eels. They thought they were they, their own kind of cool, unique marine okay. species. And they can get really large. So they can get up to the, the largest one I've ever found was 32 centimeters, which is about, you know, the length of your forearm. Yeah. Uh, it was from a species we didn't we didn't know what the adults were at the time. And the head was was so small. I mean, it was the size of my fingernail and this giant body that was the size of my forearm. So things like that really inspired me to... It, to investigate why an animal would ever evolve a body shape like this. There had to be some evolutionary adaptation advantage to this, but they were just so intriguing. And then from there, I learned that I read a lot of books and there's this whole interesting group of eels called the catadromous eels. And catadromy is the opposite of anadromy, which is what salmon do. So salmon, as people might be familiar, they spawn in rivers and then they spend most of their lives out in the ocean and then they return to rivers as adults to to produce the next generation eels there's a there's a subset of eels called the catadromous eels that do the opposite so they spend most of their time in freshwater rivers estuaries and then they move out to the ocean to spawn they die and the little larvae have to make it back to wherever their rivers and estuaries are so they, I always say they're more impressive than salmon because 
unlike salmon, those it. little larvae have never been to their their final river estuary before. So wow. really amazing. There are 11 species that fall into this group that's a genus called Anguilla. They're mostly tropical. And once I learned about them, I was like, wow, this is so cool. I really would love to look at what's happening with these amazing larvae during this migration stage. So it's kind of what got me into eels in general. And then mores, it turns out mores are really important. They're top predators. We talked about their jaw morphology. Mm-hmm. Not a lot eats more eels in their ecosystem. So you can think about them as being kind of on the same level as sharks or wow. big sea bass and things like that. Okay. They're eating a lot of fish out there and they're they're not being eaten by a lot of other things. And then they're kind of flagship species for conservation in a lot of ways because most mores are not commercially harvested. And then there are these contagermous eels that are commercially harvested. So we have both like sort of sentinels of what may be happening to non-commercially harvested species, as well as what's happening to really commercially harvested species. So the contagermous eels are in decline pretty much worldwide. We have, there's a few species that are really commonly fished. And some of the biggest wildlife tracking, wildlife trafficking crimes of this century have related to trafficking eel larvae because we haven't figured out a way to aquaculture them. So they're wow. all caught in the wild as as young eels returning to the rivers, and then they're raised up in freshwater ponds, typically in Asia. So they we we they're really mysterious. We haven't figured out how to raise them in captivity. They have this amazing life history and then eels in general you know including mores are ecologically important too so just right. it's a whole picture and it's just like you were you were saying is that they're not on the outward outwardly they're not the most charismatic animal right. out there you know you're, they're not your whales or penguins or dolphins but they're really important in their in their own way and i will say that people every time someone sees an eel on a reef on a scuba dive or snorkel they get so excited and it's one of the first things yeah. that people say when they come up Again, they say, oh, I saw an eel and it was so cool. So more charismatic than give them credit for. (laughs) They're they're charismatic. That's awesome. Oh, I can imagine every picture that I've seen of like the eels little poking their heads out. And I love their little uh, noses. They look like the nose is like coming out a little bit. I don't know how to describe it. Um, But I think that's really cool. So that, that's awesome to learn more about that. So as you've been researching these eels, as you say, they're very mysterious. I bet we're learning a lot about them. And so as you've been working with them over and over again, or with any of your, you said you did some studies with birds, things like that. Um, have you ever had to you yourself communicate your findings to the public or when you're on a research team, is that like, okay, this person on the team does the communication and you are in the field doing the work and that's kind of how it's split up or how does that go? Yeah. So for anyone interested in science or how research works, often the the communication also falls on researchers. So whether that's a form of advocacy where we're taking our information and then saying, here's what should happen with this data. And here's kind of what policy should be implemented. That That's one avenue that some people take. More typically, I think people just communicate the findings and then say, here's the information. Here's what we found. Now you policy people need to take this and do something mm-hmm. with it. So there's there's sort of two different schools of thought in science about which one is sort of the right the right trajectory. But yeah, I've totally communicated my my information to the public. I've done a lot of school groups, talking at libraries, public talk series as part of my university, things at like restaurants and bars and things like that. Oh wow, which have been really fun. I always enjoy those. You know, eels they're surprisingly charismatic, so people right. seem to enjoy hearing about that. I've been done less in the the policy space. I've worked with a lot of federal agencies with, uh, you know, for instance, NOAA or the U.S. Geological Survey, where that's where I was working with birds. And we did some report filing. I would say that that was sort of the putting all the data into a document that can then be shared with with policymakers. So especially with the USGS work, that's when I was working on birds and we were working on even influenza. So that's very timely, especially with our recent 
egg price increases and things like that, egg yes. influences is a real issue for for the for American economies. So we did some work with that with communicating our findings to policymakers. And with that project, we were looking at even influenza prevalence in wild bird populations in the eastern flyway, so along the east coast of the United States. And then the other place that I've actually worked with policy makers is with my active mobility work. So, you know, I've recently realized that I really care about transportation of fish and people. And I've done a lot of work with local governments in terms of advocacy for bike, bikes and pedestrians and just vulnerable road users in general. So very different form of government that's working with really local governments and towns, but really important too. And it feels like very important and timely in my own community to get people out of cars and safely walking and rolling around around their town. Yeah. And then I just want to mention another really fun way that I sort of different than the policy space and different than sort of public talks, I have done some outreach, really creative outreach. And this gets to sort of some of your your conversation about data visualization and things. But I created a geocaching series all about larval fish around my coastal campus where I did my PhD. And for those of you who aren't aware of what geocaching is, it's a kind of like a real life treasure hunt. You use GPS coordinates and go track down containers hidden in the real world. And the containers can range in size and difficulty and things. But I created this one where it had little stamps inside and a little information card. And there was a passport associated with all of the caches. And you could pick up the passport from our Marine Science Education Center, go to all the caches, answer a little question based on the information cards inside the cache. And then at the end, people could get a little prize for doing the whole series. So it was really That's well so received. Cool. It was super fun. And it was just a really different way to communicate science and papers and things like that in a sort of outdoor, creative, in, interactive form of education. So it was really fun. Yeah, that is super cool. Um, so I don't know how familiar you are with um, more of the environmental education side of data communication. Not quite sure either, but there's um, design principles associated with environmental ed and adventure is a design principle that is tried to be used. So as you're saying, like it's this real life scavenger hunt, treasure hunt, like that's such a cool way to incorporate design principles, even if you don't know that's what you're doing. I totally didn't know. I, I didn't. I mean, we definitely I, did that on purpose though. <laughs> I, I worked with our, um, our Marine Science Education Center on all the materials in the cache. And they, they made a lot of really great edits to the language and the, on the information cards and how things were structured and things like that. So I'm sure they were using those design principles, but I just came at it as I like to geocache and I want to be fun about larval fish. So yeah, it was really fun. And I'm hoping to, to do another similar series here in Eastern North Carolina, but I'm going to focus more on our native amphibians and probably some native plants and things like that. So um, Eastern North Carolina is a real, in, in the South in general, is a real hotspot of biodiversity, especially for amphibians and and um, and reptiles. So I'm interested, I'm excited to make a similar series, but about our local fauna. Oh, that's so cool. So if you guys listening or watching are in that area, um, be sure to check that out oh, whenever cool. it becomes available, because that uh, yeah, lives for me, because I want to do that, but I'm not anywhere close. <laughs> <laughs> But that sounds really, really cool. So in other kind of ways, so you're doing this geocaching thing or you're presenting to the public at like your restaurants and your bars, you said, or you're talking to policymakers. I know um, I'm in graduate school right now. I have to read an annoying amount of research articles and things like that. And they are very, very dry very complex. And I find myself reading paragraphs over and over again, because I don't, I don't learn best by reading. I really like the charts and the diagrams and these data visualization tools. So that's me and I'm doing the science. I'm reading this stuff. So I can imagine for a public who is not accustomed to knowing how to interpret a scientific article or a research document that you're putting out, how important it is to be able to kind of take this data and say, okay, I'm going to make it quote unquote, look pretty. Um, so how have you found it um, kind of making that translation 
of saying, okay, here's my data. Maybe here's a table, an Excel sheet of, you know, a thousand numbers or something. And how do I turn that into a graph that's way more digestible? Yeah, it's a really hard skill. And I, I think it takes a lot of practice. So it's not something that comes you know, naturally to everyone, but something that people can work on, right? It's a, it's a growth mindset kind of, you can be better at data visualization with practice. So, and I think figures are such a powerful way of communicating data. So I'm sure in all your paper reading, you've come across figures that are sort of less than useful, or there's too much data in this, in one figure, or there's a weird use of color. I mean, it's just, there's, there's sort of a lot of pitfalls, but when done well, they can be really powerful tools. So when I'm thinking about designing figures, I think about every element and if it really needs to be in there. And if the figure could stand on its own without any additional explanation, the person doesn't need to go back into the text. They don't need to read the caption in depth. Every element in the figure should make it so that the figure is easily accessible from the start. Mm-hmm. And then thinking about every element that's needed I'm is sort of a a way to try to limit the amount of unnecessary data or just the overabundance of data in in a figure. So that's why I'm really thinking about every element. So sometimes people, for instance, love to add color to figures when it's not actually needed, right? Sometimes it's just simpler to keep all the bars one color and not change the bar colors. It's not necessary for for, uh, things like a a bar chart. So yeah, I, I think a lot about sort of every element in there. Okay, which then kind of leads into the importance of then knowing when to utilize different types of charts. Like in a pie graph, you don't necessarily want everything to be the same color, whereas a bar chart, it's fine if it's all in blue. Okay, yeah, yeah. So in one case, color is really important and the other one, it's not necessary. You know, you could add color if you wanted to, but it's not necessary. Right. So then how do you kind of narrow down as you're as you're taking in this data? Do you have a way to say, okay, this is where I'm going to use this type of data visualization tool or this type instead? Yeah, I think a a bit about what message I'm trying to tell. So and that's not a that's not a me trying to manipulate the data in any way. Mm -hmm. It's trying to get the most important message of our findings out in a way that's really easily digestible. So I start by thinking about that. And then I start thinking about the data types that I am displaying. So each type of graph or figure is used for a different type of data. So the pie charts that you just mentioned might be used for things like percentages or proportions, or you're looking at pieces of a whole, whereas bar charts, you're comparing sort of abundances across categories. So how many people with different hair hair colors are found in in a classroom, for instance? And then there's scatter plots and line graphs and box plots and violin plots. I mean, you can really go down a rabbit hole wow. <laughs> visualization tools, but thinking about the type of data that one is working with and then the message that I'm trying to communicate, I think is really where I start. Okay. Do, have you ever done anything with infographics in terms of like making it much more of um kind of storytelling imagery as data visualization? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I try to think about all of the presentations I give as kind of extended infographics. Every figure should be fun to look at and and interesting. So some some of that is incorporating more drawings. So I know that you're an artist yourself. And I think that incorporating some of my art into the figure figures has been really neat. So I just submitted a paper where we're looking at octopus paralarvae, which are little baby octopuses, and fish larvae around Catalina Island in Southern California. And, you know, we're sort of comparing those two groups about octopuses and fish and things. And there's some similar plots for each. You know, we have a bar chart kind of for each category. And I've added little drawings of fish and octopuses in in each to try to differentiate easily between the two. Right. So people don't have to read anything that says octopuses or fish. So things like that, I feel like make things a little more fun, a little more accessible. And yeah, have been like a cool, a, just like a nice element to add. So in that case, the element isn't completely necessary, but it does make the message of the figure clearer. So that's why I, I kept those in. Super cool. 
Um, so I know you, you did mention I do the art, the scientific illustration, and um, I've done a bit of kind of data visualization, but in the form of more interpretive signage where I'm saying, okay, here, like, for example, I did one near a bird blind um, where I'm talking about the birds that might be seen at the different feeders and what is in the feeders attracting the various bird species. And so I got to draw everything because they were like, oh, well, you can take pictures. And I was like, no, I'm not taking pictures of all these birds that you could see at this specific yeah. Niger feeder because there's no way that I'm going to ever, it's not realistic for me to take one photo and have all of these birds here on top of the fact that you want me to include their predators and the fact that there's hawks that are here. Like that's never going to happen. The birds aren't going to stick around for that. So illustration became a really great tool that I can make that happen, that you would see this and know that, no, the birds are not going to stick around, but these are the ones you would see. Yeah. Um, so that one was really fun to make, um, which is less numbers focused, I guess. Um, I'm not saying, oh, this is the percentage of yeah. American goldfinch that come here, um, which which I like. I'm not as mathematically minded. So yeah. I mean, it's a forms of info, right? I mean, you're, you're right. still trying to communicate something through art, which is basically what every scientist should yeah. also aspire to. And just sometimes it sometimes it goes better than others. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's encouraging for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but so I guess I'm, I'm illustrating or, uh, conveying concepts more than data points, I guess. Um, so I had a lot of fun with that one and I've done a lot of life cycle diagrams. Uh, I did one on the life cycle of mosses, which was really fun. Uh, do you have a, a little project, a data visualization project that you've done that's like stood out to you as like, wow, this one was fun to create? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my dream job is probably someone giving me a lot of data and then just making really excellent figures out of the data oh, to cool. tell the best story. Like, honestly, that is my dream. So I think it's so fun that you get to do that for your job too. <laughs> And I love the life cycle thing because I've also drawn some life cycles for eels, for papers, and I have a life cycle of American eels tattooed on my arm. So really into life cycles. So That's awesome. I improve. Um, I think that one of my favorite types of data visualizations to create is our maps, actually. My PhD advisor would always make fun of me because I have had a map in every single one of the papers that I've basically ever published. I think that is actually true. Every paper I've published has had a map. So maybe it makes sense because I think a lot about dispersal and movement and transportation. Right. So maps make sense, but I also really just, I think a really well done map can, can communicate so much information in such an effective space that they're, they're, t they're tough to do. So um, my favorite paper that I've, that I've worked on the digitalization for was this one about giant sea bass, which is a big fish from Mexico to Southern California. And it's, weirdly listed as critically endangered, but it's actually doing just fine in Mexico. So it's one of these classic examples of sort of the global North okay. scientific community, not listening to what's happening in where the fish is mostly found, which is in Mexico, where they actively fish them and the population is right. doing okay. Anyway, so side note, but That's good that paper, I, I mostly participated on the paper as the data visualization person. So I didn't do any of the initial data collection. I was just given the data and I made a lot of maps for that as well as some other figures and one of the biggest responses we got from that paper was people loved the figures so I feel like that was such a fulfilling project to work on because it was so much data I mean this it was a very extensive paper and I feel like we really distilled it down in a in a great way and we produced some really excellent figures and there were a lot of maps and I had a lot of fun so there you yeah. know. that's really interesting to to hear the um the kind of disconnect though that can be there listed as one thing yet if you actually go and do the documentation do the research it's yeah. like hmm, something yeah and it, it, yeah and it really is a problem when you think about countries yeah from what what we call the I, I use this term the global north which refers to mostly countries of north of the equator but not not exclusively so Australia is also included in that community but 
basically it's a term that, you know, we've moved away from things like third world or underdeveloped. We've moved away from that term and we're more in sort of this global north, global south framework, but there's not enough communication across the, those two groups. So, you know, there is great work being done in Mexico um, on this fish and, you know, people are actively fishing it and, but often the, the science is produced in maybe another language or, you know, people sort of look down on countries where science funding is lower. So, you know, the, the global North, global South distinction often goes towards how much funding is available for science and research. So it, it's just, it's a real challenge. And then it's a challenge from, from thinking about how people don't do parach- what we call parachute science, where people from, you know, the U.S., for instance, go into Mexico, mm-hmm. gather all this data, and then don't give any credit to the local scientists who are working on that that species, or they don't support graduate students in that country, or they don't put those people on as authors on paper. You know, there's a lot of ways oh, that wow. people unfortunately fall into this parachute science trap. So kind of an, yeah, just an interesting aside, but right. uh, it was really interesting to work on that paper because it was a really joint collaborative effort between scientists from Mexico and the U.S. So that is cool. really, yeah, really great, really great work on that one. That's awesome. Um, that seems a shame to me that yeah. there is that disconnect then and yeah. that of what it boils down to is, is that communication. But I guess not that this is going to necessarily help with funding, but in terms of, I guess, just communication barriers, data visualization can help with that. Um, hey, I love that segue. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, so yeah, even when they're, and I, I found that too, on this, I was working on a project where I needed to identify a lot of fish and we didn't have great identification materials for some of these fish. They're very, very close to shore, near shore, just poorly described as larvae. So I was identifying larvae mm-hmm. and again, data visualization. So I, the, drawings of fish are a really that is the classic traditional way that we identify fish larvae is is often looking at drawings comparing pigmentation patterns number of muscle bands things like that so drawings are really important first of all and for some of these fish there were no drawings available except in literature from other countries where for instance we have some introduced species where they were poorly described in our literature but they were better described in the korean literature for instance but i don't read korean so challenge there but the the images and the drawings that was sort of universal so we were able to look at the images and do a little bit of light translation of captions and then that was so helpful in in sort of solidifying some of the identifications we were making so one useful way that visual data visualization helped me cross a language barrier to help in my own research that's super cool Still, still a shame that there is a disconnect, but awesome that data visualization can help with an aspect. An aspect of that. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I, as a native English speaker who doesn't speak any other, I'm not, I'm not natively bilingual. I, I'm sort of torn about the fact that English is the language of science. I mean, the, the highest impact journals are in English for, for better or for worse, but there is so much research going on in non-English speaking nations that is also super valuable. And I, it's, it's a problem in the publishing process and everything about translation and language and, and whatnot. So I'm just torn about the fact that English is, is this sort of language of science when it doesn't have to be, but at the same time, maybe we do need a common denominator. So anyway, something that people, lots of people are working on sort of making things more accessible. That's cool. I'm I'm glad to hear that because I definitely agree with you um, that there there needs to be some sort of common ground that is this universal, easy to read, easy to cross barriers with. Um, I play a ton of video games and read a lot of fantasy books. And I love it when they're like, oh, do you speak common? And I'm like, great, one language to rule them all. This is fantastic. Uh-huh. Um, and I wish that applied. And I, I agree, it's as a white English speaking person, like it feels a little weird sometimes, yeah. but I am thankful for the prevalence of it, especially when I travel and I'm not... Uh-huh 
as nervous. Um, but Definitely. I feel, I feel very privileged to be, yeah, to be able to speak English fluently yeah. and yeah, I've I've certainly reviewed articles for papers that for journals that are coming from authors that the Englishes are not their first language, and it's it's a it's a challenge challenging bias to confront when really having to separate the potentially like the manuscript writing itself, which maybe has a few grammatical issues, or it, it's just written in, in sort of a, a way that makes you go, hmm, I guess that is actually English, but that's not how I would say that sentence. Right. Right? From the science that is potentially really sound, and they did an excellent job. Right. And separating those two things, I think, is really hard for a lot of people. And even myself, I mean, the first step to confronting bias is to, to acknowledge it, right? Yeah. And say, I, I'm having this bias. I need to sort of consciously separate these two things for myself. So but I think it's really hard for a lot of people to do that. So, yeah, it's I think good it's to limited. Acknowledge. It's definitely yeah. good to acknowledge. Yep. That's went down a, a weird route there, uh, away from, <laughs> away but I think from it does the, get back you, to the fact that data yeah. visualization really can connect us even across different languages or nations right. or, or what have you. So really important skill to work on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and something that I'm seeing, I guess, just in my field as the environmental education, the ecology aspect is the more that I'm in it, the more I see this huge um, disconnect between science and what's been done for forever. And there's a lot in the ecology conservation, land management, green industry in general, where it's very anecdotal, where it's like, oh, well, we did this last year and it seemed to work, or we've done that for like 20 years and it's been fine, whether it's with how do we properly uh, manage our meadow areas to maintain native biodiversity or with uh, proper planting practices or habitat management, things like that. And there's very little reference to actual scientific data or people aren't um, citing sources. So if you're trying to find out, well, why are we doing this XYZ way? It's really hard to find out the why. It's just, well, because that's what we've done. Yeah. And so I see this need for this evidence-based conservation work, um, which I'm doing a little bit with right now of getting these systematic reviews for local environmental and related organizations and saying, okay, what is a, what is a problem you want to address or a question that you have that you would like the data on, but often don't have the funding to pay someone to spend hours poring over the literature to find this answer, or you don't have access to the literature, there's a lot of paywalls. If you are not in the research field and you're trying to find articles, a lot of them you have to pay for, which is fine and makes sense. You, the researchers should be compensated. The pub, people doing that work should be compensated. Um, but a lot of, especially nonprofits, I find don't wanna spend a penny more than they have to. Mm -hmm. um, and so they either don't bother with finding out the actual literature or they don't know how to. And so I just see this huge gap in people's understandings where they're not getting the actual science and they're just saying random things or making stuff up or just hypothesizing. Um, and so I see this as like, Data visualization is such a great way to put information in the hands of decision makers and policymakers and land managers, things like that. Um, but again, also going back to can be really hard for the public to just read these papers and just naturally yeah. understand <laughs> if they've never done that before. So do you have any sort of suggestion for how people can find out about evidence-based science or information, these data visualization tools, without having to go through the process of finding the raw, dry data? Yeah, totally. So a bunch of thoughts here. So first of all, I, I want to go back to something you said a few minutes ago that was about how the, the, pay, the paywall issue, basically. Mm -hmm. So 
first things I don't get compensated for any of the research. I oh, do. No. So, um, journals oh. are academic journals. It's a, it's a huge racket and I'm hoping that it, within my lifetime, it will change, but currently we pay for our articles to be published and then they make more money off the, my science. And I, I don't get any, I don't get a penny of that. There's a, um, more and more commonly researchers are paying for articles to be open access, which means that they're freely available, but usually those are in the cost order of like two to $3,000 per article to be published. So academics typically don't have much money either. So it's sort of a challenge to figure out where that funding comes from, but universities are becoming more supportive of paying for that for their researchers and whatnot. So anyone could access those articles, but yeah, the academic publishing, it's really the publishers are making money, whereas scientists and anyone accessing those articles are not, they're losing money, if anything. Oh, no. Yeah. I will say, if you ever want a paper, you can always email the author and they can send you the paper, no problem. So you can message them on Twitter, you can email them. And if there's a paper you want to read, just just email the author. They'd be, they'd be totally happy to send, to send it to you. Um, and there's no issues with that. Okay. So... If you don't want to read the article at all, so you just want to get the short, quick summary, there's following the person on social media is one good platform. So Twitter, Instagram, I've seen those really commonly used. So, and you know, most people have those sometimes Facebook, um, but usually Twitter, Instagram, and feel free to engage with them on that platform. So message them, you know, send slide into those DMs and you can ask any questions <laughs> you want about their research. Yeah. And then sometimes there are also press releases about the research paper too. So those are going to be put out by the university or the federal institution, or maybe a popular science article, science magazine or a newspaper. There will often be something, something there. And the person on their social media will likely share that if it, if it comes out. So that's one way to learn about, about science stuff. But yeah, I, I will say that research has shown that more papers are getting more and more challenging to read. Like there's more jargon in papers or more sort of dense, dense papers than ever before. So it's, it's definitely a challenge, but I'm hoping with the advent of open access mm -hmm. and more people having a more uh, more connection on their social media platforms. I'm hoping that will help alleviate some of those issues a little bit with, with dense science. It's just that, I mean, as a millennial researcher, I have to be so much more well-rounded than my older colleagues who are further on in their careers. So it, in my cohort has basically learned to focus on both the science communication skills, data visualization, writing, all of that in addition to actually doing the research. So okay. that emphasis has shifted over the last 40 years or so. So hopefully that will all make things easier in the future for, yeah. for folks. But I think that people like yourself too, who are bridging the gap between academic publishing and communicating place-based needs or a working working on place-based needs with, with your own community, I think that's a really important bridge. So you're doing great work. Yay. Oh, thanks. And, and I, I really love your, you know, you're asking the questions about what do people need? What kinds of data would do you wish you had? And then finding those resources for those people. Like that's, that's huge. Totally huge. And it's something I've been thinking about a lot recently. So I love it. Well, cool. I mean, I'm just glad to hear that, you know, the validation's always <laughs> nice, but I, I definitely do see that as a need. Um, I don't know if it's just a southeastern Pennsylvania thing, because that's kind of where all of my academic fo focus and career focus has been. But that's definitely like who I hear so often, just yeah. that people don't have the information or don't want to look it up because it, yeah. it, it can I be mean, like, and you think about, you know, I'm not sure what kind of community members you're working with, but I just heard a really interesting talk about Indigenous well, yes, uh, estuary and estuary and reserve in Hawaii, and the person managing that is an academic from born and raised in Hawaii, but not Native Hawaiian. But she's working with a lot of people who are Native Hawaiian and are stewards of the mm -hmm. land and stewards of the estuary. And you know, these people are doing—they're out in the estuary every day. They're rebuilding right. fish walls. They're doing things in on the land and they don't have time to go and read academic papers, yeah. but she does. Right. So she is the bridge in that situation. She's asking what kinds of things are you interested in us right. researching or what kinds of data do you wish you had? And they're saying, you know, this, this, and this, and then they go out and do the study and it's, it's right. such a great place-based form of research. So 
I think that that will also hopefully be more common in the future. And we'll hopefully bridge some of that gap between the global north and global south as well as doing more community-based or place-based research. So yeah, yeah, I think all of all of these are good changes that we can look forward to becoming that's, more, more common in the future. That's encouraging um, that those changes are either you're seeing them starting to happen. So I mean, you're part of that change. So yeah. Well, hey, <laughs> there we go. There we go. That, that may, again, that makes it feel good. I like that. <laughs> awesome. So for what it's earth, each person who can find out data without having to read those articles, whether you're following people on social media or you are looking for these systematic reviews that might have the data visualization tools or going to workshops that these scientists are leading, we'll all be learning more about the natural world, about what we can do to make these positive changes. And it's super cool that that data visualization has the ability to cross language barriers and become super accessible. So with that, thank you so much for digging deeper into the natural world with myself and with Kat Dale. Um, Kat, do you have anything that you would want to plug? Social media, websites, cool resources, literally. Yeah. So if you want to learn more about eels, so we, we talked more about yes. eels in the first half of this podcast. There's two books that I'll recommend. The first is Eels by James Prosek. And then there's a newer book called The Book of Eels by Patrick Spenson. And both are really good. The, the first one is a bit more biodiverse. It focuses on catadromous eels from all over the world. And I really like it. I thought it was just a really sort of global eel read. The second one is specifically about the European eel, which is also a catadromous eel. And it's also a memoir. So it's just sort of a, a little bit of a different take, but they're both quite good. And then if you want to follow me on, on social media, you can go to my Instagram, which is sort of my science outreach tool. My handle is catfish out of water. Uh, awesome. Maybe you can post that for your Patreon. <laughs> I yes. can't spell it. And there's, I'll just warn you, it, my, my sort of my deal is eels and wheels. So there's a lot of eel content. There's also a lot of bike content. So if those sort of active transportation things interest you as well, you can find them also on my Instagram. Yeah, I will say I follow her on Instagram and it is it is a good time. <laughs> there's there's, uh, there's a lot yeah. there. So it's cool. Awesome. Well, then I will definitely post that not just for the Patreon, but I'll post the link in the podcast description okay. for okay. everybody to, to kind of follow along and keep learning. So if you enjoyed this week's episode, please support, review, and continue to follow along to explore more of the wonderful ecosystems that we are a part of. As we've mentioned, the video version of this podcast is available on Patreon. So that is patreon.com backslash the art of ecology. And you'll get to see some of these cool images. I'll post the the eel skull, and I'll bring in some examples of data visualization tools so that people can see it as we talk along. Um, so if you want to head over to Patreon, you'll get to see that. And for more eco tips, inspiration, you can follow my blog at www.theartofecology.com. And you can also find me on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, as I do some science communication through photography and illustration. So you can follow along with that. And with that, I will see you. We'll both, well, I guess Kat won't be there for the next episode, but with that, we'll see you next time on For What It's Earth.